Stephanie back up to read the rest of our passage this morning. The second reading is also from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This morning, we wrap up our season of Seeking series with the unbelievable roadblock. So maybe you go outside and you find on the windshield of your car a parking ticket and you go back into the office or whatever and you say, I was only there, I was only parked there for five minutes. Or maybe it was 10 or 15, but it was only a few minutes. Like, how could I possibly get a, get a ticket? Can you believe it? And the person you tell the story says, that is unbelievable. Or maybe you're at a hockey game and one of the senior citizen ushers is walking around selling 50-50 tickets and you buy one and then you're, they're reading the number out and you're nervously following along and all of the numbers match and you're like celebrating. You say, can you believe it? I won. And the person beside you says, that's unbelievable. Or maybe... It was like a, a production that we went to at our kids' high school last week, and, and at the end, one of the MCs was, was kind of gushing over the, the, the female MC, and he was talking about what a great job he did, and everyone in the crowd was, was waiting for this fantastic, like, promposal, and, and, and then you say, like, oh, I saw this most amazing thing. It didn't happen. But you, you'd go away, and you'd say, I saw the most amazing thing. It was just, can you believe it, that he promposed right there in front of everyone? And the person would say, that's unbelievable. What a story. But actually, these things aren't unbelievable. They're either annoying, in the case of the ticket, or exciting, in the case of the 50-50 draw, or romantic, in case of the promposal. But none of them are really unbelievable. And yet, we use that language. Our reading begins 
with this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. The way Mary's day started off was, well, more than annoying, but it wasn't unbelievable. It was still within the realm of reason. They have taken the Lord and and taken him out of the tomb. She figured out, okay, someone has come in and removed the body. An unexpected twist, to be sure, but no reason to question the laws of physics quite yet. Mary's arrival at the tomb is an example of the kind of unbelief that really isn't unbelief. We use this language a lot. I can't believe that he would say something like that. You wouldn't believe how much they were asking for that dress. The resort we stayed at was unbelievable. But the truth is, pretty much everything is believable, which is why I think we use this kind of language because something within us longs for an encounter with something that truly cannot be explained. And these things are as close as we often get. We know in our gut that despite what we've heard, and despite even what we may have said ourselves, that this world is enchanted, that there is more to it than can be captured and stuffed and mounted on the wall for us to observe at a safe distance. And so we feel bad for Mary, We wonder what happened, but we're not about to have an existential crisis over a misplaced body. At least not yet. Now, what I'm about to say will be funny to a lot of people, and it'll be offensive to a small number of people, but I'm willing to take that risk. Because the truth is, a small number of people won't even know it's them. Let's say someone is telling you a story. Like, here's the story. The story is this. It was crazy. The other day at the grocery store, I ran into an old friend from high school. Go figure. But then there's the person who tells the story like this. The other day, I was at the grocery store. It was Tuesday. No. No, it was Wednesday. No, 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 I was right the first time. It was Tuesday because I was on my way back from dropping my daughter off at soccer practice. Have I told you how annoying her soccer coach is? Oh, my goodness, it's ridiculous. So it was, what was I saying? It was Tuesday. So I was going to the grocery store, and oh, my goodness, I couldn't find a parking spot. It was like the parking lot was filled, and there were so many people, and I'm like, why is everyone here? You know what? You know that person, right? You know that person? And they take forever to tell the story. And the whole time you're sitting there thinking, I am barely interested in this story to begin with. Can you just stick to the main point? Right? So we've all run into that person. Hopefully none of us are that person. But I know that some of us are. (laughs) Not pointing any fingers. The Easter story starts off with all kinds of details. Details that we wonder, why are they there? Uh, So there's a detail about a stone rolled away. There's a detail about a close race to the tomb that John wins, but then Peter sneaks around in front of him and peers in first. And then we read about some strips of linen that are lying there. We read about a burial cloth, which had apparently been folded up by itself separate from the linen. What is going on here? Who cares about these details? Who cares about how the burial cloth was folded? Who cares about who won the race? Who cares about who peered in first? Just stick to the main point. But the person telling the story cares about the details. They want to get it just right. And the reason they care is that it happened to them. Now today is April Fool's Day. It is Easter, yes, most significantly. But on on a sub-note, it is also April Fool's Day. The last time that April Fool's fell on a Sunday was 2012. And I remember this because... Now, some of you, like our church, you know, the congregation changes over years, but those of you who were around in 2012 probably remember that morning. I certainly do, um, because some smart aleck in our congregation decided that they would play a gag on me in the middle of our sermon. 
in, in my sermon. So I'm up here speaking at the front, and maybe at this point of the sermon, I start no- noticing a couple of people kind of nodding their heads like they're falling asleep. Now, to be honest, that's nothing new. Um, like, honestly, the first two people didn't phase me at all. I'm like, par for the course. Um, but then all of a sudden, like, a third and a fourth. And within, like, a minute, like, 60 heads are, like, down like this. And I'm like, come on! And then everyone laughed. And I was like, you got me. That was good. So I was telling this uh, story. I was just kind of reminiscing about this in our staff meeting on Monday. And I, I was telling this. And, and everyone kind of, like, laughed a little like you did. And then Helen says to me, you deserve it. <laughs> Again, a voice like that. And she said, that's all I'm going to say but I'll say a little more this morning. So the reason she said I deserved it was because in, on April Fool's Day 2010, at 7.19 in the morning, I sent an email to our staff. I actually found it in my inbox and uh, have it up here for you, but I'll read it. Hey staff, I wanted to send this email off before anyone left for work. Hopefully I've caught you in time. I got a phone call early this morning from Paul at the office informing me that there was a fire in our building last night. Apparently it started in our storage meeting room and the building is not safe to enter at this time. I don't know the extent of the damage, but by the sounds of it, things are not good. I don't know what else to say. And I just spent the rest of my morning responding to emails. Um, and so I won't say, like, like, who fell for it, but I sent an email out a couple hours later um, saying, well, folks, the tally's in two unsuspecting victims. So I got a couple of uh, folks that morning. It was wonderful. Oh, wow. So, yeah, maybe I deserve it. But the last time that... April Fool's Day fell on Easter, was 1956. So it's been a long time since we've had an opportunity like this, right? And it's only going to happen twice more in this century. So this is like a a really unique experience. And so I was kind of, uh, as I was writing this, my message, I I was telling Sophia about this prank, and she said to me, she said, so are you going to pull a prank this year? And I said, no, it's Easter. Like I, I just can't bring myself to it. It's Easter. But as Kurt Vonnegut once wrote, laughs are exactly as honorable as tears. And so I need to let you know that no, there will not be an animal blessing ceremony next Sunday morning. And no, Mark Zuckerberg will not be our guest speaker. Sorry to disappoint. (laughs) Everything in John's Easter story is believable until he gets to this part about Mary weeping. And now all of a sudden we're introduced to two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head, the other at the foot. And they ask her, woman, why are you crying? Now, if you've read this story or heard this story a hundred times, this is like, the words just kind of roll off the tongue. But when you think about it, it's like, there's kind of humor, there's humor in this, right? And the angels are sitting there like, so why why are you crying? You know, and they're kind of like giving each other a little wink there, right? As if they don't know why she's crying. You can practically see them snickering there. But before you can even process that, we find Jesus is suddenly standing there, which is pretty surprising since the last thing we heard about him, he was dead and buried in a tomb. And he asks her the same question, woman, why are you crying? Kind of looks back, gives a little wink to the angels, you know. Who is it you're looking for, you know? And before we can even process that, John tells us that Mary didn't recognize Jesus. So she turns around, she sees him, and she doesn't even know that it's him. Now, I'm sure, I'm not really on social media, but I'm sure that people are having a heyday today with Easter falling on April Fool's Day. I'm sure there are all kinds of wonderful memes out there, but they're a little late to the party because John was the first one to embrace the wildness of it all. I was thinking about it. Like, why not just make the story more believable? Why don't you just say, I went there, the rock had been blasted, and Jesus came out, and we were all like, yeah, you're alive, just what we thought. Instead, there's all these bizarre details that, that kind of make it tricky to believe. Why did you put angels in there? Why did Mary not recognize Jesus? That doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't you just leave out those things? But like I said before, 
The person telling the story cares about these details, and the reason they care is that it happened to them. They didn't leave these things out because this was their experience. If the first few lines of chapter 20 bore us with their all-too-believable details, well, the next section wakes us up with a series of shocking blows to the cerebrum. Something is happening here by this garden tomb that is very hard for us to understand. And Mary recognizes a familiar voice behind her. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now this is unbelievable. Here we get to the part of the story that's unbelievable. Jesus, only recently dead and buried, is alive and well. And finally, we have an encounter with something that cannot be explained. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. John's gospel is filled with details, both the boring and the unbelievable, because that is what happened. The burial cloth was folded up by itself, and Mary saw the Lord. Now, I don't know what your plans are for today. Maybe they involve a big dinner table spread with food, or, or perhaps a family walk. Maybe you'll be parked in front of a television, or maybe you'll be lying on a couch and engaging in some deep, throaty snoring. I don't know what you will be doing on the rest of this Easter, but I'll tell you what the Jesus' followers did on the very first Easter. In John chapter 20, verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the door locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. It seems strange, doesn't it? that they would be locking themselves away in fear when they had just heard about how their crucified Messiah had been raised to life. Remember, Mary runs back, I've seen the Lord. And they're like, all right, time to lock the doors. Like something crazy is going on out there. Maybe these Romans are, are playing some elaborate prank on us. Maybe someone dressed up like Jesus and said, I'm alive. Like, I don't know what was going through their heads, but they were like, something bad is happening here. Their reaction was not positive. They were not excited. They were not thrilled. This is not the fulfillment of all their hopes and dreams. They were terrified. So they locked themselves away. This detail makes it pretty clear that they didn't believe Mary. Well, then a whole week goes by. Jesus appears to them, and, and uh, he, he kind of shows them his hands inside. But then a whole week goes by before he shows up again. Now, that's a long time to have this experience, this encounter with someone who was dead and now they're alive, and then you don't see them for a week. And poor Thomas, he gets left out. He doesn't see there. He was out getting groceries or something, and he comes back, and they're all like, we saw the Lord too. Now it's not just crazy Mary. It's all of us. We've all seen him. And he's just like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. I was at a church in Montreal, St. Joseph's Oratory, and I took a photo of this statue of Thomas, and he, it shows him like with his arms crossed and this kind of furrowed brow, which I just thought was beautiful, this, this image. He's just, he's ticked off. He's like, seriously, guys, enough is enough of this. But he expresses to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Sometimes critics of the Easter story will talk about how um, the gospel writers borrowed from other ancient traditions and they, and they kind of took their stories about God rising from the dead or the, the Son of God and, and they made it their own. And I think if they tried to do that, they did a real horrible job because this is a shoddy story. Like it really is. If they were trying to one-up like some Roman or, or Greek story about this, they didn't do a very good job. 
First of all, all four of them tell the story slightly differently. There are these little differences. Were there one angel? Were there two? When did this happen? Who got there first? There's some little differences in the story. And then, of course, they have the first witness being a woman, which uh, would be significant today, but not in the first century. They wouldn't have cared. This is why the disciples didn't believe Mary. Her testimony was worth basically nothing. And then they express the doubt. Like, if you're trying to come up with some new version of this story, wouldn't you say, and we all knew it because this is what he said he'd do? Instead, they're like, and actually one of us kind of doubted, and we weren't really sure if this whole thing was for real. I think personally for me, the carelessness of the accounts is one of their most compelling features to me. The raw honesty of it. The details that we don't really care about because they matter to the person who's telling the story. These unbelievable things that we kind of wish maybe they were left out so more people could believe it. No, but it happened this way. The honesty and the rawness of it. At the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some That indicates more than one. So it's not just Thomas sitting there, but the others who had seen Jesus, who were seeing him right in front of them, were doubting. Why? What more did they want? What was going to convince them? But this is important, because even the very first Easter Sunday didn't guarantee the removal of doubt. But wait, isn't that what Jesus meant in his response to Thomas, that we're to believe Verse 28 and 29, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want to read a little excerpt from a poem by Brian Zahn. Someone shared this with me a couple of weeks ago. He talks about reading the Bible as a story. It's a story because we're not saved by ideas, but by events. Here's a plot line for you. Death burial, resurrection. Well, what does he mean that we're not saved by ideas? A couple of weeks ago, I looked up the definition of belief in the dictionary, and there were two things. The first definition was this, an acceptance that a statement is true or that something exists. And there's like a little subheading, it says, a religious conviction. And then there's a second definition of belief, trust, faith, or confidence in someone or something. But when I read that, I thought, but couldn't we add a religious conviction to the second definition as well? Because I think that's actually more of a description of religious conviction, is trust, faith, or confidence in someone. But a lot of times when we think about belief, we think of religious conviction being accepting a statement as true. Karen Armstrong writes that belief originally meant loyalty to a person to whom one is bound in promise or duty. But during the late 17th century, as our concept of knowledge became more theoretical, the word belief started to be used to describe an intellectual assent to a hypothetical proposition. And so, for 1,700 years after the resurrection, belief was primarily about this this trust and this loyalty and this commitment to to a person, and all of a sudden it became about this kind of disembodied idea, this thought. And so we read at the end of John chapter 20 that Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. At the end of chapter 20 here, belief is attached to life, but it's not because believing that things happened a certain way, the way that John says they did, 
somehow gives your life a divine stamp of approval. It's because by believing, we're bound to Christ in faith. There's a significant difference between these two, and they both matter. Believe that, yes, that's part of the equation. Believing that Christ was raised, believing that Mary saw the Lord, these things are part of it. But if we think that's all there is to it, then we miss out, because it's by believing where we get into actually living our faith out. Loyalty, faithfulness, trust, that kind of belief leads to life in His name. And I think that this may be one of the most dangerous misunderstandings in all of Christianity, that if you believe some things, then you're okay with God, because that's not what belief is about. Belief is about way of trusting life in relationship with God. So it may be dangerous if we misunderstand it, but it's incredibly freeing and powerful if we get it right. So back to the church that I visited in Montreal last month. I took a couple of photos in there. This is kind of the big screen of it, and then you focus in a little on, on the altar. And, and I was standing there looking at this carving, and you'll be able to see it. The next slide's a little closer. And I was looking at this, and basically what I realized is, oh, this is, this is Jesus at the moment of his resurrection, right? So he's in the tomb, He's kind of hunched in there, covered by this garment. And on each of his feet, these angels, they have a, a piece of his garment, and it's like they're unwrapping it. And you can see he's kind of starting to sit up. And I was like, oh, this is powerful. So right there at the front of the church, when everyone looks up at the altar, you see this moment, like the first moment of the resurrection. Not Jesus out in the garden talking to Mary, but, but the moment where he was raised to life. I thought this is powerful, but I thought, why this scene? Like, why did they choose to carve this scene on the front of the altar? So I was walking around, you know, just praying and taking photos and just enjoying this beautiful space. Uh, and the, the altar space itself, it was just like, you know, five times the size of this here, this big, beautiful space. But it was all roped off. They had ropes all around the front, so you couldn't go up there. But then I saw people walking around, and I thought, oh, if other people are up there, maybe I can sneak up too. So I walked up, and I snuck behind the altar, now, I didn't take a picture of what I saw. It was, it was very profound for me, and I didn't feel like, like capturing a photo would do it justice. But on the other side of the altar is the same picture, only in that picture, Jesus is dead. And it's carved into the back of the altar. He's wrapped. His face is wrapped. And on each end of him, the angels have their, their heads bowed and their hands clasped in prayer. And I was like, oh, I get it. I get it. Here they are, Christ dead in the tomb on one side and alive on the other and I thought about how the Lord's Supper that we've shared here this morning would be in that church spread out on this table, on this altar, um, the body broken, the blood shed, and that there would be this reminder of both the sacrifice of Christ's death, there he is laying in the tomb, but also the power of his resurrection for everyone to see. In our Good Friday service, I read a quote from Miroslav Volf. He says that every gift breaks the barrier between the sacred and the mundane and floods the mundane with the sacred. And as I was standing there looking at this, I was thinking about how the altar is a place of, where death became life. For the Jews, it was a place where an animal would be slaughtered and the forgiveness of sins would be pronounced. The altar positioned there between this, this sacred heart, this holy place of the church, and the people who would gather to hear words of hope and joy and peace. The altar built to mirror the tomb that Christ was laid in and to visibly announce the same good news that burst forth on that first Easter Sunday morning. He is risen. That the one leading in the ceremony would be reminded that what begins in death ends in life. 
and in the announcement, an invitation to follow the same path ourselves. It's good news that Christ is risen, but the best news of Easter Sunday is that we can participate in his resurrection. In Romans 6, verse 3 to 5, I'm going to read this passage. I'd invite the band to come back. We're going to close the song together in a few minutes. Romans 6, verse 3 to 5, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him, in, with him like this in death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And so the announcement of Christ's death and resurrection on Easter is not just about what happened to Jesus, but it's about what the earliest believers believe happens to each and every one of us when we say, I'm ready to put an old way of life to death and to embrace and live a new way of life. Baptism being that symbol. I read an article, I think three weeks ago in the news, about how Meghan Markle became baptized into the Church of England in a secret ceremony at St. James Palace. The move appears to be a mark of respect to Queen Elizabeth II, who is the head of the Church of England. But baptism is not a mark of respect. It is a death, and it is a resurrection that is reenacted in our own lives, publicly in one sense in the form of baptism when we go under the water and are raised again, but then every hour and every day for the rest of our lives, a reenactment of the death and resurrection of Christ. Kristen made reference earlier to a prayer that was prayed during the Stations of the Cross, and I want to close with a thought that was asked at the very last of the Stations. It's a, it's a, a question. I'd like to ask this question and just be silent for a moment and allow you to answer it in your own way. Are you willing to be joined with Christ in his death and thereby his resurrection? You see, this is the question of Easter. Are we willing to be joined with him in his death so that we can be raised with him in his resurrection? Ah, the story well told, Zahn continues, that's what is needed. It's time for the story to bust out of the cage and take the stage and demand a hearing once again. And if you allow the story to seep into your life so that the story begins to weave into your story, that's when at last you're reading the Bible right. I invite you to stand and join in a song. is risen from the dead trampling over death by death come awake 
come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead, we are one with Him again. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Beneath the weight of all our sin, you bow to none but heaven's will. No scheme of hell, no scoffer's crown, no burden great can hold you down in strength. You reign forever, let your church proclaim see now Christ is risen from the dead trampling over death by death come awake come awake come and rise up from the grave Christ is risen from the dead we are one with him again come awake come awake come and rise up from the grave oh death where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Oh, church, come stand in the light. The glory of God has defeated the night. Singing, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Church, come stand in the light. Our God is not dead, He's alive, He's alive. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead, we are one with Him again. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead, we are one with Him again. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the God, with great thanksgiving, we sing to you. We are grateful for an opportunity not only to celebrate your resurrection, but to enter into our own, to begin from this moment on to live in the pattern of dying to ourselves and living to you, to dying to our own interests and, and, and living to the interests of others, to making a difference in this world because you've made a difference in our own lives. God, we invite, the, we accept the invitation, we make ourselves ready and available, and we ask that, that you would breathe that same spirit on us that was breathed on the first followers, those first witnesses of the resurrection, that you would give us your peace, that you would send us out with power to live the way that you have created us to live. With thanks, we celebrate that you are alive, and we celebrate that we too are alive in Christ. Amen. God bless you for being here this morning. May you have peace as you head out into this world to live the way that God has created you to live, to embrace the full life that he's given you. Enjoy the rest of this 
Resurrection Sunday. God bless.